Welcome to episode 52 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Today we'll discuss a topic our listener Stephanie suggested, Christianity's reluctance to address female sexual desire. Um, just a small listener warning, we will be de- discussing se- sexual content in this episode, so be aware of who is with you when you're listening. You may want to listen apart from um, any tiny ears that you may typically listen with. Um, I'm Carla Ewert, and with me today are Blake Miller and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Hello, Blake and Victoria. Hello. <laughs> um, so we will be discussing a few articles on this topic, but before we do that, we have a quick housekeeping item. Um, network member and Christian Humanist podcast regular Nathan Gilmore will be a guest at Homebrewed Christianity's Theology Beer Camp in Redondo Beach, California from January 19th through 21st, 2017. He'll be part of their Battle of the Podcasts. If you're near California or just want to escape somewhere to, to somewhere warm, go cheer him on. Um, ticket info can be found at theologybeercamp.com. Use the code Blitzen for Jesus. That's B-L-I-T-Z-E-N number four, Jesus, to get $100 off. We're all regular panelists here at the Christian Feminist Podcast, so we'll introduce ourselves briefly and then we'll go from there. Blake, do you want to start us off? Yeah, thank you. My name is Blake Miller. Uh, I'm currently a hospital chaplain in Atlanta, Georgia. Got my Master's of Divinity degree from Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, and I'm currently engaged. Ooh, all right. Um, Victoria, you want to tell us about yourself? Uh, First, congratulations, Blake. We haven't actually gotten a chance to uh, discuss that, so that's awesome. Yay for you. Uh, Hi. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the founding members of the CFP, and I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our two cats, who are um, usually sitting next to me as I record, but uh, have already gone to bed tonight. And I'm Carla Ewert, also a regular uh, podcaster here. Um, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, very near Minnetonka. Um, it's very cold here for Victoria and I. Um, I work for the Open Network, um, which is a, a network of progressive evangelical uh, churches and organizations. Um, we do conferencing and a lot of different things, membership and uh, send podcasts and blogs and all that kind of stuff. Um, you can check that out at theopennetworkus.org if you want to. Um, I also am married and have two daughters, um, one ten and one three. So that is how I spend my time. Um, So yeah, that's us. Um, On to our knowing segment today. Um, Since we're talking about the church's reluctance to discuss female sexuality, and we all come out of a Christian tradition, um, I thought it would be interesting if we all just kind of talked about our own views and experiences on female sexual desire and how we learned that. We learned about sexuality in general, and then um, for us, Victoria and I, um, how we learned about our own sexuality, and Blake, if he ever had anything presented to him about female sexuality or how he learned to think about that, and just kind of 
how we want to talk about that or how we understood it from our upbringing. Um, Victoria, do you want to start us off on that? Sure. Um, I, I know we've talked about um, kind of related issues uh, on this podcast before. I know I have shared my uh, anecdote about the dirty lollipop uh, from my youth group and, and how that sort of colored my adolescent views of sexuality, so I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, um, except to say that I was essentially taught that it was really natural for men to desire and enjoy sex, um, but but not really taught the reciprocal thing in terms of women, um, and, and I knew that I felt desires as, uh, as a young person and an adolescent. Um, and, and then later as a young adult. And I also knew that um, a lot of adult Christian women that I respected were in loving marriages where they experienced fulfilling sex lives with their husbands. Not that they were explicit about this, but it was it was clear from conversations that I overheard and from sort of general couple interactions that that was true. Um, but, but that attitude was really absent from the kind of official lessons that I got in the church. Right. Um, we certainly have talked about this before, and I find it interesting that I somehow tend to be on these ones that deal with sexuality and <laughs> purity culture. Um, but yes, I I'm, I'm, uh, remember our previous conversations and have, have similar thoughts around those things. Um, Blake, do you have anything to add about your own uh, knowing? Sure. Uh, I personally don't have a great memory of how the church in my upbringing treated female sexually desire. Um, both because I'm a guy and because when my parents got divorced, it kind of took me out of the church for a few years as a teenager. I mostly remember our youth pastor feeling the need to clarify his thoughts on what sex was, by which we could easily say what sexual things we weren't supposed to do. And I could practically hear him, you know, saying pretty loudly, oral sex is sex, you know, and just trying to make those lines as clear as he possibly could for us. Um, I kind of remember hearing that basically both sexes did have issues to deal with sexually, but they were completely, completely different. Like pornography was the man's problem and the woman's version of that was falling too quickly in love. So it kind of came off as though women, you know, their sin was that they loved too much or too deeply and men's sin was, you know, one of greed and very basic um, selfish desire, that sort of thing. Uh, I also got taught a lot of bad ideas, I think, about chivalry. I had a college minister one time when I was in college who thought that if a man saw a woman heading toward a door, he ought to run at a breakneck speed just to get in front of her so he could open it for her, that sort of thing, and that a real man did it, and if you didn't do that, then you weren't a real man, that kind of thing. Um, and at the same time, I remember reading blog posts and other kind of media when I was in college that had women writing things like, you know, I woke up in bed this morning and my husband still wasn't there next to me, which kind of came off in several ways, like I want a man, but I'm not able to actively seek him, or I'm less of a woman because I'm single, that sort of thing. So basically, just a grab bag of cliches of male-female sexuality, and really kind of a subtle reinforcing of the ideas that men and women have extremely different roles to play and um, expressions of their own sexuality and crosses to bear. Right. I, I think I could kind of just reiterate what, what both of you have said, um, is that most of what I taught, as you said, Blake, was pretty cliche in terms of um, men had sort of um, constant and insatiable sexual sexual desire. Women, on the other hand, had deep emotional desires, and the, the two things only crossed where uh, 
boys or men were trying to sort of meet their sexual needs and women or girls were trying to meet their emotional needs. And so they would cross at that point, but, but were never, never really in common. They never sort of had a common sense of, of desire. Um, um, yeah, I remember for sure being taught, and we'll talk more about this as we go through our reading, um, but being taught that I was, that women were very responsible for, um, the desires of men that we had, um, the ability to both stir those desires and calm those desires and all of that. So we spent a lot of time talking about male sexual desire and how women were to respond to that, whether that be to sort of hold it back before marriage or to be super responsive and, um, uh, I mean, like the sort of sexual, uh, I don't know, fantasy once you were married. Um, so there was a lot of talk about how to respond to male sexual desire, very little talk about what female sexual desire or fulfillment or any of those things would actually feel like or, or be like. Um, so not, not a lot of talk around how to know yourself sexually at all. Um, almost always in terms of talking about sex, it was, it was cautionary, um, always warning, always, this is a very dangerous thing, not a thing that you can engage in without much pain and much uh, angst and all of that. Instead of, instead of that, there was never a talk of, well, this is a very positive thing you've been given in your life and here's how it can play out. Um, so anyway, that, that I think is worth noting too, is that the, the tendency of the church, at least in recent history has been to mostly warn against sexual sin rather than think about positive ways to understand our sexuality. Um, so I think that's worth noting. Um, of course, there's long history of, of sexuality in the church and most of what we're reading today is, is relatively recent and we'll, we'll do what we can to, to touch back to other times as well. Um, so we'll transi- transition now into talking about our reading for this episode. Um, in preparing for the episode, I found that there's actually kind of a surge in resources that present female sexual desire, or at least talk about it from a Christian viewpoint. Um, I think it's important to note that a lot of those are directly in response to what has been the church's tendency to focus on male sexuality as the sort of thing we need to have as the, the central point of our sexual understanding. Um, and, and it's often treated, like I said, female sexuality is purely responsive to or responsible for male sexuality. Um, so I, I, I am finding that that's starting to even out. We're starting to talk about the fact that women are saying, hey, wait, 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 that doesn't quite represent my experience. I actually do have sexual feelings and sexual um, capacity that I'm trying to understand, and I need to understand it on its own terms rather than in response to uh, or or whatever to male sexuality. Um, so the first two pieces we'll talk about today are pretty closely related. The first one is called Naked and, Naked and Ashamed, Women in Evangelical Purity Culture. And it talks about a movement called purity culture, which we've talked about on the show before, and I'm sure we will again. Uh, Purity culture was particularly strong in the 80s and 90s evangelical church. um, And this article looks at how it tended to handle female sexuality. Um, Amanda Barbie is who wrote the article, and she names some of the books that were popular during the height of of purity culture. And she specifically notes um, one called I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. Um, And interestingly, uh, very recently, like within the past three or four months, Joshua Harris came out publicly to apologize to some former readers for some of the content and the effects that his books have had on their lives. Um, So the second piece we'll discuss is actually an NPR interview by Rachel Martin with with Harris about some of his change in the way that he sees uh, sexuality and some of his change of stance from the books that he wrote um, in the 90s and where he is now. Uh, the third piece is by Jordan Mong, um, and she wrote that for Christianity Today, and it's on female masturbation is lust. Um, I'll kind of just leave that there for now. I have lots of feelings about that, and, and we'll get to it in our discussion of the of the article. But let's dive right into Naked and Ashamed. Um, 
Victoria, do you want to start us off with a summary of that article? Sure. Um, as Carla said, this article is by Amanda Barbie, and she starts the piece with a, a kind of really quick history lesson um, of a history of body theology. And I'm really oversimplifying here uh, just for the sake of time, but she essentially says that um, while body theology um, as we have kind of been saying of our own personal experiences, has been more negative recently. Historically, it wasn't always that way. The body is sometimes viewed as a positive thing because Christ had a body, and sometimes as a negative um, sort of sin entry uh, kind of figure in church history, but that specifically the female body is more um, more negative across the board. She quotes uh, a couple of really big people from church history that back up this point. Tertullian calls women the devil's gateway because Eve causes Adam to sin. Um, so women sort of have that really negative inheritance right off the bat. And she also quotes uh, Karl Barth, who says, Woman is and should be made for man in, quote, her whole existence. Uh, so, no pressure, ladies. Uh, she then goes from these attitudes into the modern purity movement, and she calls it, I think very succinctly, um, quote, a Christian cultural trend that focuses on sexual abstinence and that has gained popularity within the last two decades. Um, I like that she kind of doesn't judge it while she's defining it, uh, though she certainly goes on to, I think, rightly um, judge it. She places it in cultural history, too, says it's a response um, to both the sexual revolution and the AIDS crisis, and notes that it extends um, common Christian prohibitions of premarital sex from just physical prohibitions to mental and emotional calls for purity. Uh, then she quotes a series of both Christian and secular sexual scholars to say that this extreme view um, is really shame-based, leads to a lot of personal shame, um, often theologically neglects the existence of grace, and is specifically damaging to women uh, because it expects them to go from being desireless, or at least not acknowledging that they have desire, to being, um, as Carla mentioned earlier, the sort of holy sex goddesses um, on their wedding night. And these women are expected to um, kind of police the men in their lives, control their physical and emotional attitudes, and also to remain pure for these men um, and, and are kind of in a lot of direct and indirect ways taught that if they don't um, remain pure for these men, they're failures. Um, so Barbie kind of concludes the piece by saying this is the central hypocrisy, that, that women um, are kind of responsible for men's thoughts and desires. Pretty heavy stuff, huh? Yeah. Um, would it be okay if I go ahead and give sort of my reaction to some of what she gives here? Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to hear that. All right. Uh, just a quick anecdote first. I think another one of the uh, books that the writer talks about, besides uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, was one called Every Young Woman's Battle. And I know about that book because I actually dated a, a young woman in high school who read that. And according to her, she could look back and laugh on it at the time. 
one of the pieces of advice was instead of giving your uh, date a kiss goodnight, give him a high five. I thought that that was pretty uh, indicative and uh, of just, you know, the way that people were trying to meander around and dance around some of the uh, <laughs> the instances of sexuality that were going to inevitably come up in, in people at this stage of life. And I also thought it was typical of sort of the kind of fall in your face kind of attempts that were made. I, I liked uh, the way the article really took to task this idea that the True Love Waits campaign and the purity culture that, that sprung up around it um, could be taken really far. I did feel for myself um, a little bit of pushback because I kind of want to defend some of the impulses that I saw at that time and that I'd see looking back at, at you know these kinds of campaigns because I believe in treating the body and our sexuality with that much respect is to believe that you can make some pretty big mistakes if you're not careful. Um, and also, you know, to especially today to turn on the television and to look and see at how capriciously uh, sexuality is treated these days. Uh, I can, the idea of maybe the pendulum swinging a little bit too far in the other direction and people saying, well, we need to, you know, completely put the kibosh on it because when I turn on TV, I can basically see something that looks like softcore pornography these days. My problem, and I'm glad that she points this out, and where I really stop is um, the idea that if you lose your virginity, you're ruined. And that is something that I know that has happened and has been said and promulgated in uh, the purity movement. And that just sets my teeth on edge because it is a completely anti-Christian ethic. The idea that I think I see in that is there is a place you can go from which you can never return, or really a place you can go from which the love of Jesus will no longer reach out and take you. And I, to, to think that young women or young men or anybody were being told this in, uh, in their youth, or either explicitly or even just, you know, by implication and by certain things not being said, the grace of God not being preached enough really sort of breaks my heart. And, and in that way, I can definitely agree, I think, with the, the writer who seems to see the purity movement as uh, largely a failed experiment. Right. Um, I hear that. I think that's super interesting, um, that, that sort of tension between how do we sort out how to respect our bodies and our sexuality and, and to take it very seriously and also not fall into the sort of, um, uh, I guess, I guess this sort of fear and guilt culture that came out of this purity culture and everything else. Um, the one thing I wanted to add too about the Barbie article is, um, that what she does really well, especially in the second half of the article is talks about how, um, for people raised, especially in, in this era in purity culture that, that really, so much was said about controlling the sexuality or, or responding to or whatever. The sexuality of men was very central to the whole conversation. Um, and so it, it did teach women to be primarily thinking about the sexuality of a, of a whole of, of, of men rather than their own sexuality. So they, we weren't necessarily taught to, and I've, I've said this a little bit before, but I think she just does such a good job of, of saying that um, like she, there's a, on the second page, um, or actually, sorry, the third page, she said, what is fascinating about this burden of modesty, where purity culture talked about modesty as the woman's responsibility, is that it is this, 
is that it is the sexual thoughts and temptations of men that these girls are called to control, not their own. Although the purity movement has a lot to say about the female body and the value of female virginity, very little is said about female sexual desire. Um, and I, I, I just agree with that, that I found that very interesting, that it wasn't even a conversation about how do you control your own sexual desire and how do you understand your sexual desire, but, but how do you control that of your peers? Um, and that, that feels like such a, besides the dissociative tendency to, to try to say, I don't want to feel my feelings because sexual feelings are wrong. Like, right, that's, that's one level of purity culture talk. The second level is I'm not even aware of my own feelings because I'm so focused on the feelings of my counterpart. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And so there's a dissociation that takes another level um, to me for, for women in that regard, where not only are they just not allowed to feel sexual, but they are so aware of their counterpart sexuality that they're, it's blinding. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I, that's, that's really true of, of my own, um, youth group experiences, especially, um, one thing that, that Barbie mentions in the article that really hit me like a ton of bricks is she, uh, she talks about the, the three finger rule. Um, the idea that if you wore a tank top, um, the straps must be the width of three fingers um, so as to cover an appropriate amount of shoulder. And I, I had these flashbacks to uh, church camp packing lists. Not sure if, if you guys had these too, but there were these um, really, about, re- really detailed series of, of clothing rules. Um, I think my youth group had a two-finger rule and not a three-finger rule um, for our tank tops, so maybe we were slightly more liberal than the uh, the church that um, that Barbie went to. But I, I just remember like thinking so hard about the clothes I wore to those kinds of things and standing in front of the mirror and really scrutinizing them and feeling guilty if I if I didn't meet these standards. Um, like I, I remember one time uh, I was at some missions camp and we were doing yard work outside and my counselor pulled me aside and said, um, I don't know if you know, but your bra strap is hanging out of the side of your tank top and you need to fix that. And I'm, you know, like pulling weeds and sweating and moving around. So it's, I don't know. That was just such a ridiculous thing that happened. But at the time, I Victoria, didn't see it as ridiculous. Yeah, don't you know, Victoria, that weed pulling is the most sexual of all of the outside yard chores? <laughs> it's true. So so sorry for causing my brothers to stumble while uh, performing service for the poor. I'm sure they were able to bounce their eyes. Pretty, pretty oh, much. eye bouncing. Oh, I forgot about <laughs> eye bouncing. Uh, I'm going to, like, have a post-traumatic stress episode really soon, so someone else should talk. Right, so we I, talked about mind- eye bouncing on our, like... Uh, cross-gendered friendship episode so if any of you are interested in that idea you should go back to that episode and talk about it because it it has particular implications for especially um pastors who were trained in this and how they they treat their female parishioners and it's really important so go back to that if you if you have a chance blake you were saying something yeah um i just just thinking you know from a perspective of a guy we really didn't get taught a lot about how we needed to attend to a woman's sexuality in a positive way you know to keep you guys from stumbling often because we were kind of i think taught either explicitly or implicitly that you guys didn't have things to stumble over and that it was basically our problem so but i was wondering 
do you think there is um, a way to talk about what a woman or a young woman, a, a girl, uh, might be able to do? And it might not be too much to ask of her to, to dress in a way or to carry herself in a way that wouldn't, you know, entice men or something like that. Is there a way to do that in an okay way? Or is it just sort of inevitably um, asking her to control a man's thought life and his, you know, sin life, basically? I think it's, I think you could talk about it in terms of how to dress yourself self-respectfully. Like, how do you, how do you, do you feel to me, it, it needs to turn back toward the woman and, and what she feels um, respected in and what she feels safe in. And and I think that will vary per, for women, for different women. So I don't necessarily feel like there's a, here's the norm and you have to align yourself with it. I, I mean, I find myself even now struggling with like, I'll look in the mirror and I'll think, and I'll have all those things back from that time, the three finger rule and all of that come back to me. And, and I'll think, Oh wait, okay. And I'll analyze everything I'm wearing to see how it feels. And I, and I have such a hard time going back internal and saying, how do I feel about the thing that I'm wearing? I do want to project an image that says I'm capable. I want to, I want to project an image that says I, I respect myself and I want to be viewed as a whole human, not as a purely sexual being. So I, there's a, there are a lot of ways to approach that. I think that are, um, that are appropriate. One thing I wanted to say too, Blake, about what you said there is that you said that um, you weren't taught a lot about how to how to think about female sexuality. You weren't as a man, also because you thought we didn't necessarily have a stumbling block. The thing that I think is interesting is what what men were often taught is the stumbling block women have is their emotions. So therefore. <laughs> Men are somehow responsible for for protecting women from their emotions by disengaging. So I have this sense, and it, it's not fully formed, but that, that both women and men were sought, taught to, in some way, disassociate from whichever thing. Women from their own sexuality, because they didn't have a chance or weren't taught to approach it, and men from their emotionality, saying that it was primarily a female thing and that if they engaged it too much they were somehow causing their sister to stumble by by engaging her so so I feel like there's this um it, it tends to alienate on both sides if that makes any sense like it tends to alienate if you if I if you as a man think you need to protect me from my emotions by not engaging them in the same way that I'm supposed to protect you from your sexuality by not engaging it like all of that gets really muddled and troublesome um and and extended too far right like Self-control is a virtue. Self-control is good. It's biblical. But the the kind of the degree to which this gets extended, like Barbie mentions, you go from something physical to something that's physical, mental, and emotional is is just too. It's too much. It's unhealthy. I agree. Uh, I believe that just a, a healthy understanding of of the power of your own self-control is is psychologically healthy you know before we even talk about theological or christian concepts i i work with you know patients as a chaplain who sometimes talk about what their friends or their family members caused them to feel uh doing this or that thing and sometimes i have to either bite my tongue because it's not the right time or sometimes gently ask them now do they do people force you to feel things, you know, without your permission, or you, is your expectation or your desire not aligning the way you would like it to with other people's, and and therefore that might be work that you can do for yourself. Because so many people I work with seem to believe that they can't be happy if other people are doing this or that, and I think that that's a recipe for making sure that you will never be happy 
as long as you don't believe you're capable of, of, of seizing that opportunity yourself. Right, right. And that, that's very much about being aware of need and desire and owning your own feelings and all of that, which I think this whole culture tends to, to make difficult. Um, and that, you know, comes in all kinds of forms. Um, was there anything in this article, we, we should probably wrap this one up and get to the next one. Is there anything in this article you want to touch on particular points you thought were interesting before we leave it? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm good. I think I've talked about pretty much everything that I found really important. Okay. Blake, was there yeah. anything? Uh, same here. I think we've, uh, we've really explored what all of this could potentially mean for people uh, seeking to do right by their brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. There was one thing that just kind of, I'm going to say real quick, that I think kind of touches on what you were saying too, Blake. Um, um, there was the one metaphor or, or the one thing that she talked about, the donut cleavage example, which is, let me real quick talk about it. It was talking about a middle school sort of um, retreat and the the speaker said, um, was talking about how cleavage could be super tempting for boys. And he put donuts in the top of his shirt and leaned over and, and was saying like, that's, it's the same kind of temptation. So what Barbie says about it, and I thought this was really, really helpful, um, was that this metaphor could have, could have provided the opportunity to critique the objectification of women's bodies that is rampant in modern American culture. But like most discussions of male sexuality within the purity movement, the, objectifi the objectification was seen as normative. Like, it was normal. He, they act like, oh, that's normal for you to be tempted by that. The objectification of a woman's body as something to be um, consumed, it was normative, rather than taking that moment to teach middle school boys to respect the body of their female peers. Um, and, and that that whole metaphor was teaching girls that their bodies are dangerous and tempting, rather than teaching them that, rather than teaching that, that um, this objectification is not normative. It doesn't have to be the way you handle things. So anyway, that, that was helpful to me too, I thought. Um, That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So on to the NPR interview with Joshua Harris. Um, Blake, do you want to summarize that for us? Sure. Uh, so the article is called Formal, Former Evangelical Pastor Rethinks His Approach to Courtship. And it's a pretty brief, brief conversation with Joshua Harris who's a church pastor, and he wrote uh, what I would probably call the seminal Christian dating book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And a couple of sentences that get repeated in the interview itself are, dating is a distraction. It can help you practice being a good girlfriend or boyfriend, but those aren't the skills you need for marriage. And so Harris in the book talks about the impetus uh, for the book being the sense that young people were getting more and more intimate before marriage. And so he wrote the book at 21 before he himself got married which I thought I'll bring that up a little bit later. Uh, and so he, he writes a book about how courtship is, is a superior alternative to dating. And uh, he's been receiving criticism ever since by people who say that the book was used as a weapon against them or as a way of creating a set of rules uh, for their non-dating lives, which then can easily be additional ways to feel shame at a person's own sexuality. And he pays a bit of lip service in the course of this interview to the idea that that could have been bad form on the part of the churches and parents um, who, who took this book so quickly to heart and not exactly the content of the book itself. But he also displays a good bit of humility, I think. He apologized on Twitter to women who talked about how the book was uh, bad news for them and their lives. And he notes that he hasn't comb through the book again to disavow any specific parts of it, but he does reject the idea of using it or any book as a rule book for exactly how relationships should work. 
And then when the interviewer says that Christians seem like they would naturally like having a book of absolute rules, uh, it, Harris admits that it's kind of a rock and a hard place because Christians do believe in right and wrong. But determining that we've found that path for all Christians can be easily legalism and other heresies. Um, so personally, I never read the book in its heyday. Uh, and so I, I didn't really understand the impact of it as, as it was gaining popularity and becoming such a go-to text. Really, when I first encountered it and coming back to it here to talk about this, I, I can't help but think he was 21 years old and he wasn't married when he wrote the book. I'm really surprised that it got the kind of pickup that it got, that people took to it so well and didn't think that that was um, a sort of a disqualification on the face of it. What do you guys think? Well, it was interesting. I, I didn't actually read it in his heyday either, but I did go to a Joshua Harris in, uh, speaking thing where he was speaking. And they actually used that point that he was 21 in the, in the midst of all this as a selling point, like that, that, that he actually was the expert because he was in the same place you were. So he wasn't speaking as somebody who was now having sex regularly or, or whatever as a married person or, or who had an, entered into sort of the promised land of sexuality as a married person, okay, but that was right that. With you, sort of struggling. So that I remember clearly that he, they talked about that as sort of the, the way that he related and, and his selling point. Um, but yeah. I, I agree with you, actually. I find it really interesting that at some point a publisher thought, yeah, we should put a 21-year-old's 20, um, advice on how to be fully prepped for marriage out there <laughs> and let, let everybody run with it. So, Yeah, I, uh, I agree with what you guys are saying. Um, I, I did read this book in youth group um, a, a few years after its release. I think I was in eighth or ninth grade, so that would have been... 2000 or so um i I remember thinking that that 21 uh at the time when i was 14 or uh thereabouts seemed incredibly old and wise um now i i'm 10 years on from 21 and i i just can't help thinking of um that John Mulaney comedy bit where he says uh, having a teenager babysit your kid is like hiring a horse to watch a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think right. it's it's kind of like that. Um, like this 21-year-old, man, when I was 21, I barely knew how to tie my shoes. You know, like this is just kind of ridiculous. And um, and, and that book gave him a platform to, to write other books. He, he wrote a book on um, married sex with his his wife um too and i i think uh they they have a, a couple other books together now um so this this definitely became a, a really huge um thing but i i think what's what's interesting about it is how how incredibly prescriptive it became like it became this magic formula um if you court instead of date your you won't give pieces of your heart away your heart will remain intact um and and you'll save yourself heartache and and trouble and problems if you just perform these steps in the right order doesn't that sound exactly like what a 21 year old would say that you know to go out on too many dates with somebody and then stop dating them is to, to lose something you can never return. I remember feeling that way. I didn't read this book, but I remember, you know, even in high school feeling like I don't want to start something that I can't finish. And, and knowing now I, I really haven't lost something I can never get back just because some of my girlfriends, you know, didn't work out that sort of thing, or I guess all of them except for the latest one <laughs> um, didn't work out. You know, I, I've learned things and I've, 
grown stronger and you're definitely going to lose. And I, I guess I, I know this a little bit better than most. I don't want to hype it too much, but as a chaplain, you know, you will deal with loss no matter what. So don't think that you can escape from it by making sure you, you only dip your toe into the pool. You're going to jump in, you know, completely one day. Right. And I think one of the things that's so, that can be so unsettling when you've been raised with the idea that if you do things right, you somehow will avoid loss is that then when loss occurs, inevitably, there is some sense of shame along with that loss because you feel like, oh, well, that means I didn't follow the steps correctly or I didn't um, somehow I, I missed that step or I didn't do a thing, you know, like the, the promise of like not no loss with good behavior or whatever else is just such a such a setup for shame um, that I think that's super troubling. Um, yeah, absolutely. Not life is complicated and people are always in relationship and, you know, humans are complex. But if you if bad things happen to you, you did it wrong. You messed up. Right. I'll add I'll add an extra dimension to that. You're also in danger of saying if if I feel like I did everything right and this person that I thought two weeks ago was God's gift to me as a wife or as a husband just broke up with me. Hey, God, why did you mess up? You know, people can can teach themselves to believe in that, that, you know, I have I've prayed to God that girlfriends I've broken up with get back together with me and thank God that he hasn't listened to every hasn't given me everything I've ever asked him for. Right. Uh, so I, it's a dangerous game to play that there is a way to do it all correctly. Because if nothing else, scripture teaches us that people that do it the right way still have really bad things happen to them. And sometimes from the people they care about themselves making different decisions than the ones they would like. Right, right. Um, there was one point I thought in this in this um, interview that, that was interesting and that I've, I've said positively about my being raised in purity culture too. Um, Joshua Harris says, I was advocating for friendship. I was saying, you know, you can get to know this person, you can enjoy a deep friendship, but when you get into this, in this relationship where you're sharing more and more of your hearts and bodies, is that a really good thing? So he, he, one thing that I think, I mean, I disagree with the fact that once you get into exploring your friendship with your bodies, that you've somehow crossed a line into something that is always going to be dangerous. What I agree with and what I found actually really positive in my being raised um, to avoid sexual contact contact until marriage was that I did have really deep friendships with my with my male counterparts. We did have a chance to get to know each other on a lot of levels um, without sexuality being the primary level on which, you know, that we were interested in each other in. Um, and I wondered if you all had a, a similar experience with that. I just, I just remember feeling like um, it, it, I remember feeling surprised when I sort of exited my sort of sheltered world, how when I interacted with men, it did seem like sexuality was so much more quickly a part of the, of the atmosphere, where with my friends from, from my Christian world, it felt like we got to have a whole bunch of things happen and talk and conversation before that was even an issue. Does that, does that make sense? Did you guys have experiences like that or no? Um, Blake, do you want to weigh in here? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I'm in a, an interesting position, I guess, because I'm a 30-year-old virgin. So in a way, like I haven't arrived at the promised land at all myself. Um, so, But I believe that I really, I, I'm grateful that I've been able to, to, to walk that road because I haven't had to negotiate 
you know, the sexuality to that extent, at least, you know, if you have a, a sexuality as it exists right now. Um, but yeah, there's, there's been the ability to, to have a relationship that is not so completely based on sex. And so, um, I get to know people more for who they are, I think. And it's, it's kind of hard to say because, you know, I, I do still have those desires and they do have some expression, if not complete expression with, you know, my, my romances in the past. But yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful that I was taught to, to be careful in that way. And I believe that it's had a really positive effect. Right. I am. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you. Okay. Um, I, I do think that I, I was able to have, have friendships with, with boys, um, partly for reasons that you state, um, because sexuality was at least to a certain degree, um, not, not a part of the equation that there was, um, there was this notion that we were sort of all, um, all made in the image of God and all servants of God together. Um, so there, there was a, a kind of really strange, um, element of, of equality there. Um, and, and I always was, was taught, um, I, I guess in, in church, um, at least as a young person, I think less as an adult, um, and, and also in school that boys were my, were my intellectual equal too, and my social equal. Um, well, for example, Blake and I went to, um, to elementary school together. We competed on teams together. Um, we were friends when we were young a lot and never really, you know, were anything other than that. Uh, though I, I should say that my, my mother um, sometimes laments that that is true uh, and still likes him very much. Uh, you tell her I said, hey, Victoria. I, I, I will do that and she will be very pleased. Right, right. I mean, I, I think all of that is really interesting. And then you cross into the place where you, you think about what Barbie is saying about um, that as a dissociative problem that, that – thinking about, like, even my thinking about that in terms of, oh, I had the chance to get to know these people before this other thing, as if somehow our sexuality is separate from all those other things rather than an integral part of it, is, you know, perhaps reflective of my own my own dissociative tendency toward my sexuality. So I, I don't know, I find it all super interesting that I can both value all of those things and also say, well, and it might be problematic. I'm not sure. Um, let's keep keep moving on to the monarch. Article. Um, our final final article, like I said, was uh, by Jordan Monk, and she wrote it for Christianity Today. It is called um, "The Church's." Let's see. Hang on, I actually can't find the title, but it's on the problem. The church's um, problem with lust. What the real problem with lust is. Um, and so, basically, what she's saying is that common Christian interpretations of female masturbation tend to interpret the act through the lens of like a psychological pathology that women masturbate out of a sense of some deeper sense of lack. Um, or other relational issues rather than sexual desire. And um, Monk indicates that this is a refusal to acknowledge that women actually have sexual desire and insists that it would be more correct to just call it lust, like we call it for men, um, and to acknowledge that there is sexual desire, common sexual desire, and that women often deal with that or, or experience that through masturbation. Um, Mong suggests that we approach it more as a sin that needs to be controlled than as a, a, a psychological difficulty. Um, does that sound like uh, what you guys read? The summary sound about right? 
yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, any anything to add to that summary, or anything before we go on to sort of interesting points about it, or rebuttals, or anything? I personally am just grateful anytime someone tries to level the playing field for men and women and say that men experience lust and women do too. I believe that it's a grand disservice to both parties because as a guy, I, I do believe I remember feeling like a, a worse type of human because it seemed based on what I was hearing that I struggled with certain sins that women didn't struggle with. And sometimes even today I hear pastors that say things, you know, to teenage guys or young 20s guys, and they say, you know, the worst thing about guys is that they can be greedy, selfish, lazy brats, and the worst thing about women is that they, uh, you know, hang out with and date and marry those guys, and they let them do it. And I'm just like, well, I've I've met a couple of bratty women in my life, I don't know, you know, and so I like it, I believe that, you know, it should be shouted from the, the rooftops that women also deal with this lust problem, because when they uh, experience that problem. They need not feel like there'll be one woman in the history of the world that has actually experienced it and feel especially heinous because they can't live up to that impossible standard of purity that goes so deep as to even your most craven thoughts and desires. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I thought that it was actually kind of a, a progressive um, part of this article that she acknowledges that women are, are capable of lust and experience lust too. Um, because I, I definitely remember feeling sort of what you were talking about. Like if, oh, if I have these desires that are um, sort of being taught to me as, as being inherently male, like am, am I a wrong kind of woman? Like what's what's wrong with me for, for having these feelings that, that aren't supposed to be womanly or feminine or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. I, I felt like her, I, I had a couple of, I had very mixed feelings about this. Um, I felt like she was empowering women by sort of giving them desire back by saying, oh yeah, actually, let's just call it what it is. It's sexual desire the same way it is for somebody else, rather than calling it a pathology, which I feel all kinds of things towards <laughs> what we do with women and our needs. And by calling most of our needs, whether they're emotional or sexual or whatever, we can thought we act like female need is a pathological thing and I have a real problem with that so oh, I, sure I mean that that's a, a hugely long history right of, of sort of um, medicalizing female emotion I mean it's it's green sickness in the in the 16th century it's hysteria in the 19th century it's um, the feminist theorist Susan Bordeaux has argued um, anorexia and bulimia in the 20th and 21st centuries so this is a this pathology has a, a huge history Yes, totally. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you. Um, I and I think, but I for me and I actually, I think that she sort of takes away again the agency that she gives by then calling it a sin by calling it lust. And I would extend that to men too. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that it's just women. I would say that any time we label sexual desire as lust, um, I, I feel like that becomes problematic. Um, I think that sexual desire is a very biological natural thing and it ought to be honored and it is our responsibility to do no harm with it to ourselves or to anybody else but I I actually don't don't fall under the category where I believe that sex should only be experienced in marriage and that that that's the only um appropriate place for it or even the only place that it's holy um I think that anytime we are 
understanding and honoring another human being and their need and our own need in, in, in conjunction with that, that is an honoring thing. Um, so, and I'm not, I'm not disrespecting the belief that the many people hold that sex is only, um, positive in marriage. I just don't necessarily hold that anymore. I think there are a lot of ways to understand ourselves and understand our needs that don't necessarily deny them constantly. Um, there was one spot in the article where she said, um, she said, let's see, she's kind of acknowledging that. She said, um, it's also human nature to want to be wanted. It's normal for that desire to manifest in a desire for sex. The problem is that there is no good moral outlet for these natural desires before marriage. <laughs> and I just thought, there's no good moral outlet? What if masturbation is the good moral outlet? <laughs> like, if, if you truly believe that that having sex with another person is is an immoral outlet, like, how come masturbation can't actually be the opposite of that? Like, is any sexual pleasure, is, is the argument here that lust equates to any sexual pleasure and that gratifying sexual desire with pleasure is always a negative? Is that how you all are understanding her? I've heard it said uh, that not being able, not being allowed to masturbate without it being a sin is like having a video game attached to your body that you're not allowed to play, which right. kind of resonates with me. Um, yeah. I appreciate the idea that uh, that these ideas happen to us. And the as I've gotten older, I used to, you know, swallow hook, line, and sinker if somebody told me something like, there is a type of thought that if you have this type of thought, it is sinful. You know, that it's harder for me to justify that as I get older. And, and I'm not sure how much I believe in it anymore. It's just that, you know, that my sexuality has an expression and that I will feel that way and I will want these things. And I'm sure that there is a way of taking that too far, even in, you know, how you think about maybe other people that you know in your life. But I, I, I agree that it, there seems to be a danger in pathologizing the idea that, you know, you're a human being and you want to have sex. Wow. Who, who would have guessed? Right. Right. And I actually, I actually say all that as someone who did, I did wait to, till I got married to have sex. So I'm not, I'm not saying it out of a sense of like, oh, I did actually, and have felt that that choice wasn't in my best interest. I actually have really felt that, that it, it has not served my husband and I very well. Um, and I, and I, I think that I would have been better served to have understood my sexuality more broadly and to have experienced it more broadly and to understand, have understood my needs and all of that in a, in a more, in a more integral way. Um, I, I just think that she talks again about like, um, it's an issue of learning to tame one's lust rather than, and, and just that, that phrase learning to tame one's lust feels just so inappropriate to this issue. Like, I feel like to recognize your desire and to understand it, um, is more important than taming something that is, is a natural occurring thing. And I almost think you could argue for masturbation as like self-care and understanding your own sexual need um, and caring for it rather than shaming it and, and trying to lock it somewhere where it can't get out. <laughs> like that just feels, it feels inappropriate to me. It feels like an inappropriate response to something that we were, that, that is a, a God-given part of our, our whole selves. So I, to just kind of extend on, on what you're saying, Carla, um, I, I think it's important here, or at least important to me, to, to distinguish between desire and lust, because I, I think that desire is, is natural, and at, at least in, in my view, um, lust is, is sinful, because lust is, um, 
is is excess is is lack of control um and i i think that lust is is not a one size fits all issue i i don't think it should be treated that way i think that things that are are lustful for a certain person are not necessarily lustful for another person um and and that those things are are sort of complex and and between that individual and god to a certain degree um is masturbation lust for some people absolutely is it necessarily lust for all people i don't think so and i would say uh i'm always worried when i think about these things maybe not worry but i'm just thinking at what point are we trying to let ourselves off the hook for jesus when jesus says be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect and and i understand obviously the impulse you know try to avoid sin and i understand from that then you know kind of explain away the sins that you can't help but commit, that sort of thing. So I live in a tension of, I'm not sure what exactly is allowed and what isn't. And I want to believe that God wouldn't be cruel in what he tells me I can and cannot do, you know. And I think you guys can know what I'm talking about there. Um, but also, can we, can we give up something even to the point that it, it seems to hurt? And, and I'm not sure what the answer is for, for ev- I definitely don't know what the answer is for everybody. And I kind of go back and forth on what that answer is for myself. Totally. And I, I think that that verse, I've, I've understood that verse to be less about be perfect, like Jesus, you know, like that that's more about how he was perfect in love rather than about some sort of a moral perfection. Um, and I'm not, I mean, we can debate that. That's not really the point, but I think. Oh, no, I, think I agree that. Take that one verse is, is a is a very useful verse depending on how you want to use it. So I wouldn't want to drive a stake in on where exactly right. the exegesis of that is. And I agree with you. I think Victoria and that desire and lust don't aren't necessarily synonymous. I think that how they're used often in purity culture and even in this article, they are very synonymous. They are treated as if you have desire, you have to learn how to control that desire before you even understand what that desire is, whether that desire is somehow absolutely um, else. so that that I think that even if we're saying those two things aren't necessarily synonymous that most of, much of the reading you'll do that people can find on this <laughs> it it does make them feel that way, so I would want to push back on on those two things, like yeah, yeah, I would very often i would I would say that lust is much more rare than desire. That's, that's my particular response. And I have probably a different understanding of sin than, than maybe, than maybe we're talking about, but anyway, all of that. (laughs) So, um, anything we want to add to that to wrap that one up or. I was really interested in one of the last things she says, she gives this mnemonic that John Piper wrote for, for how to deal with, with lust, I think. Yes. Let's talk about that. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about the Piper and Because I want to talk about what she added to it. If you guys want to go ahead with Piper, you can do that. Uh, Oh, Oh, John Piper. Oh, (laughs) as a woman, like I just, I have so many problems with John Piper. Um, Many apologies to my super complimentarian brothers and sisters. Um, I just, I, I just can't with John Piper. I, I feel like he's so incredibly condescending, um, especially to women, but, but also to men. Like this, this mnemonic, I just feel like does not understand how human people work. 
Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm going to get ranty soon and we're running, uh, running low on time, but I, I, yeah, this mnemonic does not feel like it has ever met or talked to a human person. Um, it, it feels very rigid. Should we, do we need to read it now? We probably need to read it now. Sure. Probably do. Okay. Um, I'll do it. Um, so the mnemonic is the word anthem. Uh, A. Avoid tempting situations as much as possible. N. Say no to lustful thoughts in five seconds. Why five seconds? I don't know. Turn the mind toward Christ as a superior satisfaction. Uh, hold the promise and pleasure of Jesus in your mind to drive other thoughts out. I don't understand what that means, but it feels kind of icky. Yeah, I had that same, like the pleasure of Jesus, I have double underlined under pleasure, and, and that's somehow the same, like the pleasure of Jesus is somehow the same as sexual desire, and then I thought, for me that went to, so often we think of the pleasure of Jesus as like a really good worship song, like that, is that what that means, like somehow trying to get to that really great worship space in order to avoid sexual feelings? Anyway, sorry. Keep I, I mean, I'm a Calvinist, so emotion doesn't really play into my equation a lot, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yay, Presbyterians. Uh, e is enjoy a superior satisfaction in Christ. Again, what does that mean? Uh, M, move it's the in... the P, by the way. So it's reiterated. Okay. Um, M, move into a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable situations. Um, the M might be kind of useful, but also just feels really legalistic to me and like oh just keep busy and don't think about your impulses it kind of feels like and you know i can see john piper feeling this strongly about it but it feels like when you you get a little bit of highway hypnosis and you realize you're kind of veering into the other lane and you jerk the wheel and then that wave of relief comes over you that you're not dead that, that would you know that's what the m feels like move into a useful activity away from idleness and you're just like okay phew i almost lusted for a second there and that's, it's really just hard for me to work up the fear of lust that that would require, I think. <laughs> that's so interesting. So what, what did she add to it there that you liked? Well, she added uh, that you need to have a community where it's safe to express the struggle of dealing with this. And I thought that was a great idea. And what I would love to see happening in, in churches and small groups and any other place where Christians congregate is just more openness to the fact that there is a struggle that they, you know, that they deal with it, that people around them are dealing with it and that God still loves the struggling Christian and stuff. And I would love to know, I kind of wish somebody would write an entire article based on how to have a, a group that struggles together. And I would really love it if they said, we can actually even do this integrated guys and gals. You know, we don't have to cordon off the way we usually do on Sunday mornings. Have, have you read, oh, sorry. Nope, you. Go ahead. Uh, have you read Bonhoeffer's Life Together? I haven't. No, I haven't read uh, that one. Tell me about it. Uh, well, it, it, it doesn't talk about this specific um, instance. It, it's not, there's not a, a huge portion of it about sexuality, but it, it does talk about kind of struggle um, as a church body and the idea that community is, is a way to... Um, to understand both the holiness and the brokenness um, of, of 
Christians trying to trying to go through life together. Um, it I, I read it while I was living um, in in graduate school at the the Presbyterian University Center uh, at Florida State University. Uh, if anybody from Puck is listening to this, hey guys, you're awesome. I love you. Um, and I, I really learned how to kind of see my humanness and my sin and my failure as something positive in that it bound me to the people around me, that, that we could sort of not be perfect together, and that was a good thing and a, and a growing experience. Uh, so I, I, I would recommend uh, Bonhoeffer's life together to, to anyone who's kind of trying to figure out those rough patches. I'll check that out. Thanks. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, anything else? Anybody want to say on that? Although I, I want to sec- real quick second your thought, Blake, that I think um, if we could do this together as genders rather than in a, in a separated way, I think that is really positive. I, I, I'm deeply interested in that, the idea of us being less um, sexually afraid of one another and much more engaged as whole people. Um, so, yeah. You, you took the word afraid right out of my mouth. I was about to say the exact same thing. Um, I, I do think that, that single gender groups can, can be really productive and, and useful, but I, I definitely think that often they're the only thing that we do and they shouldn't be the only thing that we do. Right. I think an option for either or if somebody doesn't feel comfortable, you know, going across that aisle, I can understand that. But for those that that don't want to to talk about it as though, you know, there are sins that men commit and sins that women commit, I think that that can be helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Some deeper understanding of each other um, on that level. Yeah. And we talked about that again in our sort of how this stuff impacts um, another episode, how this stuff impacts even uh church leadership, women in church leadership and those kinds of things. So I think that's huge. Um, But we need to start wrapping up. So let's do our passing on section. Um, Blake, do you have something you want to pass on to kind of continue the thought process on this? Um, I'm not sure if what I've been working with uh, directly engages with the idea of female sexual desire. I hope you can forgive me. Um, But I would pass on a uh, website called readscripture.org. It's been... um, I think it's curated by Francis Chan that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. He started a new podcast trying to get people to read scripture alone every day. And he, so he um, uploads, I think, about once a week a new podcast where he just talks about the scripture that they've been reading. And it's been really interesting for me to sort of get deep in the word like that. So I would recommend that to any fan of Francis Chan who's glad that he's got a new podcast out. Fantastic. Victoria? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to recommend the book of Marjorie Kemp, uh, which is uh, thought to be the the first ever autobiography. Um, It's a a book written by a a medieval Catholic female mystic, and um, the, the sort of the thing that you hear about it, if you hear about it out of context, is that uh, Marjorie Kemp really wants to have sex with Jesus, um, which is sort of true and sort of not true. But um, what what I like uh, about the book is that 
it really treats um, her humanity and her female humanity, specifically holistically. Um, there's a, a scene in book one, section 36, where Jesus tells her, uh, therefore I must be intimate with you and lie in your bed with you. Daughter, you greatly desire to see me, and you may boldly, when you are in bed, take me to you as your wedded husband. Uh, so she has this vision of Jesus where he says that he's going to be all things to her. He's going to be uh, her husband, her father, her child, her brother, um, all, all men and all things in her life. Uh, and she will be known and loved by him completely. She has this vision of Jesus. And then uh, after that, her husband comes to her and is like, hey, it's time to go to bed. And she says, nope, Jesus is here. You can't be. Bye. Uh, <laughs> but but that's a, a, a kind of um, oversimplification because he's talking about a kind of spiritual wholeness. Um, but but what I think is really interesting about the book is that it it does recognize that that she's a whole person and that her sexuality and her physicality are important parts of not just her life but her her worship too. So um, th this kind of physical spiritual really stark division um, has not always been a part of church history. So if you want to know more about that, check out the book of Marjorie Kemp. Right, I remember reading Marjorie, and I'm thinking maybe she would have something to say about Piper's mnemonic for us, um, <laughs> about the presence and pleasure of Jesus. Um, anyway, I would like to pass on um, an article by Deborah Hirsch called The Church's Sex Problem, in which she talks about our sexuality and our spirituality and how they actually align and how the way that we define those two things is actually very similar. Um, and so that they actually can inform each other. Deborah Hirsch has written quite a bit on um, sex. She has a book called Redeeming Sex. Um, and yeah, she's, she's a good source for some new things, um, new thoughts on this stuff. Uh, I also have a, a friend who's doing a lot of research on this, and we'll have a book coming out on purity culture. Her name is Linda K. Klein. You can find information on her online as well and the impacts of purity culture on women. Um, so all, the links to all these articles that we've talked about and are passing on will be in our show notes. So you can check that out on the website. Um, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes on this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison. Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Blake Miller and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, I'm Carla Ewart. Tune in next time for a special episode introducing our new regular panelists, Sarah, Kim, and Christina. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love. Thanks, guys.